from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our Old Testament reading comes from Job 2. Please turn with me in your pew Bible to page 430 of the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. One day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to the accuser, where have you come from? The accuser answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. The Lord said to the accuser, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then the accuser answered the Lord, skin for skin. All that the man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to his face. The Lord said to the accuser, very well, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So the accuser went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz from Temanite, Bildad the Shehite, and Zophar the Namathite. They met together to go and counsel and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Zach. Well, it's great to see so many children with us in worship today. If you'd like to participate in godly play, I'd invite you to depart the sanctuary now. You can meet our leaders up front here. And it's good to see so many of you in worship. And don't forget to tell your parents about the Christmas pageant. <laughs> Friends, let us pray. Lord, we're now in this uh, third week of uh, this sermon series on friendship and the Christian life. And we'd ask that you break open this word afresh to us this day so that you would speak to us in such a way that we'd be changed, that we would be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As I just prayed, we are in the third week of this sermon series that is contiguous with our Stembler Forum on Friendship and the Christian Life. Uh, and today we have before us a portion of the book of Job. Uh, and in Job, in the Hebrew in particular, uh, if you read Hebrew, it would uh, immediately uh, show to you that that this is a particular story in a particular genre of writing. It's like in English if I said once upon a time, 
or if I say a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you, you understand the kind of story that you're going to hear. The same is true in Hebrew. Uh, the book of Job opens like a folk or a fairy tale. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job is one of those narratives in the Bible that I like to say is true and may have also happened. It's true, and it may have also happened. So Zach read for us the second chapter. I want to do a little work in the first chapter before we get to the account that he read. We're introduced to Job in that first chapter as a husband and a father to ten children. And by all accounts, he was a man of great means and exceptional wealth. He was also a man of exceptional piety. Job was devout. He was righteous. He was obedient to God. Well, one day, God calls a staff meeting for all the angelic heavenly hosts. And these heavenly beings start showing up, and one of them on God's staff is known as the accuser. The accuser. Now, this character is often thought of as the devil or thought of as Satan, the one that we meet often in the New Testament. But, but the language here indicates that this is a different being than that being we meet in uh, the New Testament. This is not the devil. This is part of God's staff. This is one of uh, the folks that, that, that works for God, this angelic being that works for God. And the way I like to describe this angelic being called the accuser is that this is God's chief compliance officer. Okay? This is God's chief compliance officer moving about the earth all the while keeping tabs on who is complying with God's law and who is not, who's obedient to God's command and who is not. And so as God welcomes the staff, God also welcomes uh, the accuser and begins an unprompted conversation with that angelic being. And God says to the accuser, there is no one like this man Job on earth. Have you seen him? Have you met him? He is blameless. He is upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. To which the compliance officer retorts, and I'm paraphrasing here, the only reason Job fears you, the only reason that Job worships you and is compliant with your commands is because you've blessed Job and you've put a hedge of protection around him. And then God does something in the story that is totally perplexing uh, and a complete surprise. God says to the chief compliance officer, okay, I'm going to remove that hedge of protection from Job. You can do whatever you want in his life, but you can't kill him. You can't kill him. And that's what the compliance officer actually does. Great calamities befall Job's wealth and his family to the point that all of his livestock and, oh, by the way, all of his children perish. They all die. Even so... In the first chapter, Job does not renounce God as he utters one of the most famous lines of the text and one of the most famous lines of all of Scripture. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, this is just one of the most difficult aspects of this story, but but it's also one of the difficult aspects of the entire Bible. The great writer Virginia Woolf once said to a friend, I read the book of Job last night. God does not turn out well in the end. 
many have read this and find this God intolerable. They've read this story and, and they, they find it hard to square their own experiences, their own faith with the God that's depicted in the early chapters of Job. And what I want to say, and we just don't have the time to do it, but what I want to say is, is that it is quite possible theologically that one of the reasons that God allows for this to happen to Job uh, is because God is so confident in God's goodness. Last week we talked about God's goodness. Perhaps God is so confident in God's redemptive power that God knows that whatever befalls Job, that God will make it right, that God will redeem, that God will make all things new. And for those who know the story of Job, know exactly, rather know that that is exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. Everything is restored. Life comes out of death. Still, I just want to say it and name it, that this is a tough pill to swallow. This is heavy theological lifting. And it leaves both the casual reader and the seasoned scholar somewhat perplexed. Well, as the story moves on, we're told that the accuser comes back to God. And God says to the accuser, see, I told you so. See how faithful Job is? See how steadfast and resolute he is in his fidelity to me? And the accuser then says, pushes God a step further and says, well, look, if, if you had uh, allowed me to do stuff to him, then surely he would curse you. That if you allow me to, to bring infirmity and pain into his life, then, then surely this one will curse you. And so God relents again and allows the chief compliance officer to inflict great physical pain on God's servant Job, but he cannot kill him. He cannot kill him. And that's what happens. That's what happens in this story. And so grieved and so distraught is Job's wife that she calls on him to curse God. She calls on him to reject God and then tells him to die, which is another way of saying, you should take yourself out. You should die by suicide. And Job, of course, refuses. Job refuses, and he acknowledges that God is God. And a powerful witness and testimony that God is God on the mountaintop, and God is God in the valley of the shadow of death. That God is God, and Job will remain faithful. We are talking about friendship in this series, and it's a good thing because at this point is when we see Job's three friends show up to comfort him. And I want to focus on uh, their relationship with Job as we think about this concept of friendships or friends, rather, in crisis. Friends in crisis. As Job's friends show up, Job is so infirmed that they cannot recognize him. They cannot recognize him. They don't recognize him as their friend. They wept and they wailed at his suffering. And the writer says, and listen to this, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. In the Jewish tradition, and many of you know this, this is called sitting shiva. Sitting shiva. You may have visited some Jewish friends or relatives as they sat shiva, as they have grieved over the loss of a loved one. The word shiva is a playoff of a Hebrew word that means seven. So literally what it says is that they were, were sitting seven. In other words, they're sitting seven days and seven nights in grief. And when, and when we're thinking about how we respond 
to friends who are experiencing a crisis, I think we would do well to take a cue from Job's friends, at least in these two ways. And the text is very clear about how they show up for Job. They do two things. Number one, they stay with him the entire time. And number two, they keep their mouths shut. They practice the ministry of presence and they practice the discipline of silence. The ministry of presence and the discipline of silence. They kept watch with Job. They shared in his suffering and they recognized that, that this particular moment that they were in, that they were sharing with Job, did not require explanation. It did not require futile words. It do, did not require garrulous talk. This moment of crisis required presence and shutting up. This particular moment required presence and silence. Now, it must be said that that not every moment requires silence. We remember the words of wisdom from the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a time to speak and there's a time to keep quiet. Knowing what the moment requires is part of the discipline of friendship. It's part of the practice of friendship. Discerning, spiritually discerning. Is this a moment where words are required? Is this a moment where only my presence is required? And part of how we engage with our friends that are in crisis requires that kind of discernment, requires that kind of prayer and intentionality. My oldest uh, friend, his name is Scott McDevitt. And we're born three months apart. We were born three doors down from each other in our row home in the Mayfair section of Philadelphia. When I started middle school, my family moved us out to the suburbs, but Scott stayed in the city. Nonetheless, we still remained close friends. And when my father died in 1991, uh, we were both 16 years old. Uh, and for the viewing and for the, for the uh, mass, we were Catholic at the time. Scott and his family drove. They waited in a long line to pay the respects to my family and to me. And I remember this quite vividly, that Scott came into the line, and as he moved forward, I recognized him and his family. He came to the casket. He crossed himself and offered a little prayer and then stepped in front of me and for about 10 seconds just looked at me and kept quiet, which was quite awkward for two 16-year-old boys in that kind of moment to share. But I'll never forget it. He just kept quiet and looked at me, and then he opened his arms, and he hugged me. And he did not say a single word. Now, I know that you've stood by caskets. I know that you've been in grief. I know that you have been in moments. And we know that people mean well. Oh, we know they mean well, don't we? But people say some things that really don't need to be said. And here's the, a 16-year-old who understood that better than anyone, who read the moment, who knew that that moment, what can you say in a moment like that one? He practiced proximity and he practiced the discipline of silence. Friends, when we have friends in crisis, and you have friends in crisis right now, I know you do. When you have friends in crisis, part of our friendship is the discerning what that moment requires. And perhaps all that moment requires is you. 
Just you. Not your words, not you trying to explain things away, not trying to make sense of the situation, but just you. Just you. I mean, in our culture where there's so much talk and so much chatter, we think we're like compelled that we've got to say something, but maybe the moment just requires you. This isn't void of any theological grounding. This is deeply rooted in our Christology, in who we believe Jesus to be. Because each and every Sunday we remember that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. God practices proximity. God shows up. God shows up in those moments of crisis when we or our friends are at our lowest point. And God speaks powerfully through presence. I mean, that's the essence of the gospel, isn't it? That God spoke once and for all definitively in and as the person of Jesus Christ. That God spoke definitively in presence. There may be moments where your friends are in crisis and, and you need to say something. But there may be moments, and you're thinking of somebody right now, I know you are, where maybe all they need is you. And by you, I mean you as a God-bearer, you as a light of the Holy Spirit, bringing that spirit into their presence and sitting with them and mourning with them in crisis. What I invite us to do is take a posture of prayer. And I want you to think about the person you're thinking about who's in crisis. The person who is in the valley of the shadow of death. The person who is desperate for God. person who longs to know that God is good. And in silence, just name them in the silence of your heart to God. Put them before the throne of God's grace. And Lord, we pray that you who are a God of our friendships, the God of our friends, would be God to them even in this moment. We'd ask, oh Lord, that you would show up in a powerful way in their lives. And above all, we would ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would use us to practice proximity, to not move away, but to move toward that we might just be the answer to the prayers that they are praying in their crisis, that we would take a cue from Christ himself and Job's friends, and that we would carve out the time intentionally, and we would carve out the bold energy to move toward them, to not let this just be a moment of prayer, but that you would turn this into a moment of action. 
that you, O Lord, would use us to bear witness to your goodness in the crises of our friends' lives. We know that you can do the same for us. And so for those of us who are in crisis, in relationships, or in friendships, oh Lord, would you send the people we need to bear witness to your goodness, that we would know that you are close, and that you will never leave us nor forsake us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for his proximity to us, and we pray the prayer that he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, God has been so generous to us. We return a portion of that generosity to serve God's mission and God's kingdom. We can do that in multiple ways. The ushers will come forward and wait on us in this moment. We know so many give online and through various ways. You can give through the QR code as well. Uh, our accounting office, Peggy McCurdy, will receive it all. And thanks be to God for all that you give and the generosity that's displayed under the blanket of God's grace.